Hey friends, welcome back to the Pulpit to Pew podcast and what I am now calling The Classroom. And Sundays I'll be posting what I teach in the classroom. And this week we began a brand new series on the book of Hebrews, one that I've been studying for over a month now. And I'm excited to get to just introduce the book and get started in the first three verses of the book. And that's what we did today. But don't don't think, oh, this is introductory and it's first three verses. It's not a big deal. This is huge. Because this sets the tone for the book. It helps you to know what to expect from the book. And so today's lesson is very, very important. I had like 11 people missing from my class. So I'm hoping some of you are here listening to this. And so um, I think I only went about 29 minutes or so. So it's not going to be extremely long. But it is an important one as we kick off this brand new study in the book of Hebrews. So thank you for being a part of the podcast. Thank you for listening. Make sure you go to pulpit-pew.com to get the newsletter that comes out every Monday with weekly biblical nuggets of wisdom. Without further ado, here is this week's study. All right, let's go to Hebrews 1, and we will get there in just a minute, but Hebrews chapter 1. I want to, my brother last, if you were here last Sunday morning, he kind of opened up two studies, and I'll say this again tonight a little bit, but he opened up our study in the book of uh, our theme, but then, and he talked a little bit about Hebrews, and he gave some introductory things, and he kind of opened up what we're going to do, be doing on Sunday night, but I want to back up and give some introduction to a book. I always love starting a book study, because I like to go kind of behind the scenes, and why was this book written, who was it written to, uh, who wrote it, which we're not going to solve that one today, it's a great mystery, but um, we'll have some opinions. But let's, let's start there and think about why the book of Hebrews. And this is an interesting book for me. I've taught through a lot of books of the Bible, especially the New Testament. Hebrews I've never taught through from cover to cover, from beginning to end. Well, for some reason, in my mind, there was maybe some sort of intimidation to this book of Hebrews uh, because of what I, I assumed that it was about. I was like, I don't know that I want to study through all that. But as I've been diving in for... Uh, probably a month or so, getting ready for this series, I I was like, why have I been ignoring this book? It's got so many great things, which I'll talk about in a minute. So let's just start with who wrote this book. If we're going to start with it, we need to know who wrote it. And the answer is, we don't know. The common saying, you'll hear preachers, I've heard it my entire life growing up in church. A preacher will stand up and you'll hear it. So look for it now. All right. They'll say, hopefully not my dad, but he may say it too. They'll say, all right, take your Bibles, go to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews was written by, well, we don't know, but it was Paul. When we get to heaven, you'll know I was right. Okay. Well, I don't know how many times I've heard someone say that. It probably was written by Paul. Probably. But there's also some things that make me think, I don't know. If I get to heaven, I told them this back there when we were praying, I wouldn't be surprised if we get to heaven and Luke's there is like, actually, I wrote the book of Hebrews. I wouldn't be surprised. I kind of think if it wasn't Paul... It was Luke that probably wrote it. But some think Barnabas, some think Apollo, uh, some even think Priscilla. I mean, they've got all of these people that they think may have wrote it. Here's the answer. I could spend five minutes trying to show you why I think this or why I think this, but what does that really profit us? We don't know. But what we do know is the Holy Spirit, just like the entire Bible, is the ultimate author. He just used human penmen. So um, it's inspired by God. Who actually wrote it, I don't know. It is fun to investigate it just because Paul. it, it starts off, look at verse 1. It says, God, who in sundry, sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. Now, how did Paul start a lot of his letters? Do you remember? He'd say, Paul, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So 
So that's one little thing. But this author does say later he's in prison. He does say salute like Timothy and all the people that he used to hang out with. So there's a lot of different reasons. But we don't ultimately know who wrote it, though it's pretty assumed that it is Paul. But who's it written to? That's kind of uh, more important and something we need to study. It was written to some immature believers. And when I say immature, I don't mean that in an insulting way. But it is some immature believers that really haven't been growing. They hadn't been growing. And were now kind of wavering in their faith. And so these are, these are people that, you think about it, take yourself back 2,000 years ago. This is not modern America that we're talking to here, we're looking at. These are people growing up over there in that, that culture. They had been raised in Judaism. He's writing to Jews, immature kind of Jewish believers. But they had been raised in Judaism, but now had, had, had converted to Christianity because of Jesus Christ. And so there, because of that, some persecution had come up. And so now there's some persecution. Well, whenever, I don't know about you, but I tend to like to get away from pain. Okay, And so what happens is if you're a young believer, an immature believer, by, Im- by immature it's not an insult, just like a, if I had a two-month in here, I could say they're immature and nobody would be like, wow, you're insulting that two-month-old. Okay, They're just immature in that they don't know a lot of the deeper doctrines. And so an immature believer that's seeing some persecution among Christianity and thinks it'd be a lot easier just to go back with everybody else is doing. And so the persecution has driven some back. But not only that, um, they were considering a return to Judaism because a lot of their friends and family were there. It's convenient. And so you're, you're in Christianity saying Jesus Christ is the Messiah, but your family's saying, hey, you need to come back and do these rituals that we do. You need to come back and, 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 and come to the temple like we are and all of these things. It's, it's tempting to go back to what's comfortable and what you know. And so they're, they're young believers. They're wavering in their faith because of some of this. And this entire book, and I, I haven't got to the theme yet, but this entire book is talking about how Jesus is much better. You could say the themes are different. You could say the theme is spiritual maturity, and that makes sense because they were immature believers. But you're going to see this word, and I'm just bouncing around in my notes now, but the word better comes up like 13 times in this book. He compares and contrasts Jesus to everything in Judaism. The, 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 uh, and I'm going to get more into this. I don't know why I'm bouncing around in my notes. I just want to tell you right now. But uh, he's going to compare Jesus to the prophets. He's going to compare Jesus to angels, which Judaism, that was a big deal. He's going to compare Jesus to Moses and all this. So he's, const- he's going to show these Jewish believers that Jesus is better. I like when my brother gave this illustration it, when we were back there praying. He said, if you had a mean dog, and, you had a, and a mean dog had a bone, and you needed to get that bone. And so, you know, you could try to get that bone. You may get bit at. But if you took a T-bone steak, nice, bloody T-bone steak, that's so much better than that little bone, and you set that down there, the plan would be that that dog looks at this little bone and then looks at that big old T-bone steak, and he says, I don't need this bone. He drops the bone. He goes, gets the thing that's better. What this whole book is about is Paul, I said Paul right there, see, sorry. But the author of Hebrews saying to these believers, don't go back to Judaism, the bone. Jesus is so much better. He is the fulfillment of everything that you've been looking for. Everything that you've been, your, your prophets, everything that you're, they've been saying in the Old Testament, Jesus is that. 
And so he's, he's this, this, some possible themes are the superiority of Christ. He's better than the prophets, the angels, Moses, Levitical priests, spiritual maturity. Those are all possible themes. And you may say, okay, what well, does that apply to us? Because I, I'm not a Jew, so I don't. But we can be spiritually immature at times. We may not be going back to a system of sacrifices in the temple, but we can want to go back to where we're comfortable. We can, we can want to get away from worshiping Christ as we should. We're not outright denying him, but there's a ton of practical applications for us in this book. When was it written? Well, if you, you kind of, it doesn't tell us exactly when it was written, but if you, you do a little research, we know it was before the temple's destruction. The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., so it was before that because he's going to reference the temple and some of the sacrifices. So it's not, it hasn't been destroyed yet, but it was during and after some of the persecution they went through. So many believe by Nero. So many believe it's between the times about 67 and 68 AD. All right. So the, what is Hebrews known for though? Before I get into the first few verses of this, what is it known for? Well, when you, when I, immediately when I think of the book of Hebrews, and I should have quizzed you, but I don't want to put anybody on the spot. Well, when you think of Hebrews, what do you think about? Putting your, I think Hebrews 11 immediately. Hebrews 11 is what's called the Hall of Faith. That's where he talks about the, all the different men and women of the Old Testament that were men and women of faith. And he starts from Enoch, and he builds all the way, you know, Abraham, uh, Isaac, I mean, he goes Joseph, all of these, and he's just talking about their faith. And, and I've, heard, I've taught many times on Hebrews chapter number 11 through that for Sunday schools and things. You've heard him preached. It's all, it's a chapter about men and women of faith in the Old Testament. It's a great, great chapter that we're going to get there probably in the second half of this study in the end of the year. <clears throat> chapter 12, though, is a chapter when I think about Hebrews, it's a chapter of discipline. Now, tonight's message, I don't want to give too much away, but tonight's message, I'm going to talk about the heart of God and how sometimes we view God and how God, Jesus, and how he wants us to view him. But there is a chapter in Hebrews about discipline and how God does discipline his children. It's not supposed to be a scary thing, but he says in that chapter, you know, discipline's not a joyous thing. As I said to you, I think last week, I got a lot of discipline right outside here in these stairs when I was a little kid. My mom would walk me out to that back stairs right there and I would learn the word discipline right there in those stairs. And I deserved it every single time. It wasn't a joyous thing. I didn't, you know, when my grandpa was preaching, my mom was taking me in the back. I didn't go, yes, I'm going to go get a whipping. Yes, this is a joyous thing. I didn't say that. But here now at 42 years old, I am thankful for the lessons that she taught in my life, especially when I see where our society is going today. I'm thankful for those lessons. So discipline's not a joyous thing, but it's, it's needed. And in chapter 12, it's talked about how Jesus disciplines us. Oh, chapter 4 has got that. Remember that verse we hear quoted all the time, let us come boldly before the throne of grace? It's from Hebrews chapter 4. We'll get there. I said already, but the word better is used 13 times, comparing Jesus to these different Old Testament or Judaism in many ways, showing how Jesus has fulfilled that. He's the, if I could use it reverently, he's the stake instead of the bone, or the T-bone stake. That word's used. This is a book full of warnings. Now, this is where it's going to get tough when we get into the warnings. Those people, many, some believe that you can you know, teach that you can lose your salvation. We do not teach that at our church but they'll run to Hebrews chapter 6. So we're going to wade through Hebrews chapter 6. What does Hebrews 6 mean? We're going to get into that. But there's warnings 
in this though all throughout he's warning these immature believers if you slide back if you slip if you don't hold fast to the word of god here's what's going to happen there's a bunch of warnings in the book of hebrews but then 13 times it says in the book of hebrews let us and he's trying to get it's the idea of he warns them yes but he's saying let us like let's go on to spiritual maturity let us do this instead of that that phrase let us and that phrase better all of these come up multiple multiple times so with that being said and i wrote in my notes it's really cheesy i go let us move on to verse one but that's really cheesy all right so i'm not going to be that guy kind of all right but let us now move to chapter one verse one it says god so the the author of this doesn't try to explain god he just says god he has the understanding that we know that there is a god my reminds me of genesis chapter one when it says in the beginning god that's how the bible starts doesn't have to justify or explain god is eternal he's always been so it says god who at sundry times not a phrase we use a lot many times and in diverse or many different manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets so if you were a jewish person and i was talking about your fathers they would say that's abraham isaac jacob the 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 fathers of judaism and so he's saying that god back in the past in the times past spoken to their fathers their ancestors and these key figures by the prophets and god did speak there's there's a contrast let me just go ahead and read verse two because i want to show you some contrast he says hath in these last days so let's contrast last days with the previous verse in times past and then he says spoken unto us look in the back look, the verse one he says they spoke unto the fathers and then he says there by the prophets and look in verse two he says by his son there's some contrast going on in these first two verses and he's saying today god speaks through his son and we know that God speaks through his word, but I'm going to make, show you how, what he means by this here in just a second. So how has God spoken in the past? He starts in verse 1 by saying that in the past God spoke to these pro, through these prophets. Revelation in the Old Testament came through the prophets, and it came in various ways. That's why he says sundries, uh, times, and diverse manners, several different ways. And, and we'll just think through quickly some of them. He spoke through parables. In the Old Testament, there were some parables. Isaiah, who was a prophet, spoke in parables a few times. One time he had one about wild grapes, and, and we could go into others. But he used parables. Sometimes he used a historical narrative. Job was a historical narrative. Uh, but it was also poetry, to be honest. It was all written in the Hebrew in poetry, so that probably fits more into poetry. Um, uh, there was the story of Hosea. Um, and, and Gomer, I mean, there's, that's a historical narrative that was done. There was also some prophetic confrontation. So there were sometimes those prophets came down and they confronted the people. Remember Haggai, my wife just read through Haggai. Haggai came to some people that were getting lazy and he said to them, consider your ways. That was a confrontation. You know, if I came to you today and I said, hey, you guys, listen, you need to consider what you're doing. Everybody, when you said that word consider, they all realized, oh, this is a little bit of a confrontation here. And so, but the, some of the prophets would confront Israel in the Old Testament because they needed it. And that was how God spoke to them back then. Um, some was a dramatic presentation. Do you guys remember any dramatic things that Ezekiel had to do? 
Ezekiel, one time, if I remember this right, I'm just on the cuff, he had to lay on his side for 365 days in front of the people. You imagine every day getting up and walking like, oh, there's Ezekiel again, laying on the same side. And coming home from work, oh, there's Ezekiel again for 365 days. There was stuff he had to do. Well, I won't get into all of it because it would get gross. But there were some things that God used Ezekiel to do some crazy things to try to show Israel, this is you. He used some, some dramatic confrontation, some uh, presentations. He used visions in the Old Testament and the like. He, all kinds of ways. That's why he says in verse 1, In sun-dry times and diverse manners, God spoke in the time past by the fathers, or to the fathers by the prophets. He used these prophets in the Old Testament. But now in verse 2 he says, Hath in these last days. Last days began when Jesus came. We're still in the last days today, 2,000 years later. But in these last days, he's spoken unto us by his son, capital S. Jesus, now he has spoken through Jesus. And it isn't so much that Jesus brought us a message. So the prophets would bring a message. So they would come and say, here's a word from the Lord, and they would bring a message. It's not so much that Jesus brought a message from the Father, but he is the message from the Father. So when Jesus hung on that cross, what was the message? The message was, God loves you. God is paying for the sin. He, his wrath is being poured out on your, for your sin is being poured out on his own son. He was the message. And so the idea in this text that he's getting to is that Jesus is far more than the latest or the best prophet. You talk about some of these uh, uh, Mormons or Muslims, they always say, well, the, the, the last prophet that came, they'll talk about um, uh, I just Joseph Smith and say he was a prophet that came. No, no, no. Hebrews shows us Jesus is the last man. He is the message from God. And I'm going to show you some more verses here in just a second as we continue on down. But he's saying there's no other prophet. There, there's no other message that's coming. Jesus is the final message. All of Judaism was waiting for that. You remember back in those times when they would kill the lamb and the blood and put it on the altar and all of those things? What were they doing? They were saying, this is something we're doing until the, the lamb of God comes. Well, Jesus came. The lamb of God came and he took the sins of the world upon himself. And so God has spoken through his son. Now we have the Bible. That's God's word. But what is it made of? It, the Bible, the New Testament is, <clears throat> excuse me, it is Jesus Christ, the Gospels, what he said, what he lived, what he did. And then you have the, the Acts, it's the history of the start of the church that was based on what Jesus told them to do. Then you have the epistles that was written by Paul mostly and Peter and John because of what Jesus Christ had said. Everything is built upon the Son, Jesus Christ. And so he has come, the Messiah has come. And so as as the author of Hebrews is writing to these immature believers, Jewish believers. He's saying, hey, the Messiah is here. He has come. And he's greater than your prophets. Now, I may upset a few of them. He's not saying that the prophets don't mean anything anymore because we go back and read the scriptures right now. We read the Old Testament. Don't fall into the group of those who say, well, the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. It's only the New Testament. Because Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, quotes the Old Testament more than any other book. In the New Testament. Hebrews is, is going to base everything off of the Old Testament. So it's not that we just throw out the Old Testament. No, no, no. The Old Testament pointed towards a Messiah. The New Testament is the Messiah has come. He is here. 
Jesus Christ. So now as we get into verse, um, after chapter, uh, starting verse 2, he's going to give us seven descriptions of Jesus that I'm going to go through quick and be done. But he's just showing in this that Jesus is better than the prophets. So look at verse 2. He says, Has of these last days spoken unto us by his son. Now he's going to, there's a comma, and he's going to describe his son Jesus. It says, Whom he, God, hath appointed heir of all things. So first, Jesus is heir. Jesus is granted the possessor of all he is titled to, and he's entitled to everything. He says, All things. So Jesus is heir of all things. No prophet was an heir of all things. But God says, my son, Jesus Christ, is heir of everything. He says he's the creator, because notice this next phrase. He says, by whom he also made the worlds. Jesus, we know, is creator in the beginning. I quoted the verse in a minute ago, but in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word God is plural. God the Father was there. God the Son, Jesus, was there. And God the Holy Spirit was there. God the Trinity, the triune God. You go to chapter 26, or not chapter 26, verse 26 of chapter 1. It says, let us make man in our image. Who was God talking to? The triune God. Colossians chapter 1, I think it's in verse 17, talks about that by, by him, talking about Jesus, all the world was made. He created everything. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, word was with God, and the word was God. And then it goes on talking about how he created all things. Jesus is creator. He's God. And, but this word, uh, the word here, I think at the end of verse 2, worlds, is also more than just the material world. It's talking about the times, which I won't dive a lot into. But he, he's, he's made time and the ages and everything that has come to pass. Really, God exists beyond time. He created time. There was no time before in all of eternity. But he, so Jesus Christ is the creator of all. He says, so he's heir, he's creator, he's the revealer. Look at verse 3. He says, who, talking about Jesus still, being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. So what is that? There's some big Hebrew words there, or excuse me, Greek words there that I don't, I don't, I can't pronounce them all. One of them is, but one of them's talking about the Shekinah glory, and what he's saying is about the revealer. He's saying all that God is, Jesus revealed to us, because God the Father, God the Son, Jesus is God. So He's the revealer of God. He's not merely just God's ways. He's not acting after God's ways, but He is God. He's expressed completely in his son. Now, I could go into the Gospels. I don't think that's not the purpose of this class. I don't think I need to convince you guys, hopefully, that Jesus is God. But we could very simply go into the, the Gospels and see where Jesus claimed to be God, and he is God. He, he, uh, he is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But when he was here on this earth, we got to see the expressed image of God. No one's ever seen God except for Jesus, except in Jesus Christ. No one can. <laughs> the, the glory of God, and that's why some of those songs say, what's it going to be like when we get to heaven? We're all going to fall on our face before God. He is so holy and so perfect. It's going to shock us, but God took on flesh and became man in Jesus Christ. He was born of a virgin, lived a sinless, perfect life, and died and was buried and rose again. So Jesus was the expressed image. The, he took upon the form of a man. He's the revealer of all that God is. But then Jesus is the sustainer, because look at the next part of that verse. 
I know I'm going through these quick, but he's, if you remember from the context, he just said his son, and then he said, whom he hath appointed heir. He made the worlds. He's the brightness of his glory, the expressed image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. He's the sustainer. You see, Jesus is sovereign. The weight of the world is on his hands as creator and sustainer, and he holds everything together. That's why sometimes when it's just foolish to me, when I'm all worried about everything and, oh, everything's going to fall apart, everything's falling apart. Whoa, Jesus is holding this world in his hands. He's, he, he's a sustainer of all things. He can sustain the little life of Brad McClure. He can help me out. You think about how big our universe is, how vast it is. When, when people start talking about light years and how many, I mean, I'm, I just get like, is that even real? It feels like science fiction when they're, it takes this many years to get from this place to this place, but we can see it. I'm just like, man, that just seems like so science fiction. But it's real, and even the people that don't even believe in God say that's out there. And Jesus simply sustains all of that. He upholds all of that. He created all of that. And then I look at my life and I'm like, oh, a few things are out of line here. I don't know what to do when I can just call on him. Do what Hebrews 4 says, come boldly to him. He's the sustainer. He is sovereign. He's everything. But then it continues on just talking about Jesus. He's just kind of listing off seven things. He goes on, he says, he upholding all things by the word of his power, when he hath by himself, this is Jesus, purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I love this. He's the redeemer. He talks about how Jesus purged our sins. He, he, he paid for our sins. We deserve it. I should have been on that cross. We, I deserve every bit of punishment for every sin I've done. But Jesus, God, came and was born, took all of my sins upon himself, and died on that cross. He was my redeemer. He bought me out of my sin. That's what he says here. He purged us. But then what's neat, and this is big for a Jewish believer, after he purged our sins as my redeemer, it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know what a priest would do in the Old Testament? You sinned. In the Old Testament, you'd bring your lamb. You'd say, I, I committed these sins. Not a priest like, like you would go and behind a veil today or talk. You would bring a lamb. The priest would kill the lamb, bloody, spread it across this and to pay for your sins. Then the priest would go, and he would once a year, the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies in the presence of God. But they would do all of this, and the priest wasn't sitting down at all. He's constantly working because of the sins of the people. He's constantly working. You know what Jesus did? He took all of your sins upon himself, and then he got over to the right hand of the Father, and he sat down. Why? It's done. There's no more sacrifice for sins. There's no more lambs being sacrificed. Jesus doesn't have to go die again. He has sat down. It's a position of completeness. It's a position of, of um, power. It's a position of, hey, this is all done. Jesus, no, none of those high priests got to sit down all day. You read about it. All day, they're sacrificing for the sins of Israel. But now Jesus came. He died once, paid the price, was buried, rose again. And he ascended to heaven, and he sat down in a position of, it's done. It is finished, as he said on the cross. Jesus is the redeemer. He's the ruler. He's in that position of authority. Now, can I give you this one little nugget? You remember back, this is, side, this is separate. But you remember in the book of Acts, when we were studying the book of Acts, remember a guy named Stephen? 
when they were persecuting. Stephen was, I've got a whole message on this, but Stephen was um, preaching the gospel to people and they got mad and they stoned him. They, they tied him down and threw stones on him and killed him. But just before he died, he looked up into heaven. What did he see? Do you remember? He saw Jesus standing, standing at the right hand of the Father. Well, that's not his normal position. Because Jesus' normal position from Hebrews, he sits down. But I personally, I preach a message called Worthy of a Standing Ovation. I, I don't know, this is my opinion. But when Stephen looked up and he saw him standing, I think it was Jesus just getting ready to welcome him. A standing ovation, getting ready to welcome his servant, who was just stoned to death for his faith, welcome him up into heaven. And Stephen said, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Same as Jesus. And then he took his last breath and he saw Jesus standing. That's not a normal position. You won't see that anywhere else because Jesus sits in a position of power, in a position of it is complete. He is the ruler. He is the redeemer. And then finally, and then I'll end with this because I'm not going to get into more of this next week. He is supreme. He's over the angels. It says, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty being made so much better. There's that word better for the first time. So much better than the angels. And he hath an inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now I'm going to pick up there next week and moving on how, and talk about how Jesus is better than the angels. He's supreme over the angels. And I'll be honest with you, when I first saw this, it may be why I never studied Hebrews. Because I get to this, I'm like, he's better than angels. I already know that. Moving on. But to these immature believers, angels were a big deal. You know, I was thinking about our society. Angels are... Were, they had their run here. Remember this? I mean, they, they, what was those, some of those angel shows? I, can't, I just lost it now. But there were some, some of those angel shows that were out there. Even my dad's favorite Christmas one uh, is where, what is, what is that one old black and white show at Christmas? No, no, where the guy who says, I wish I was never alive. And then he was gone. He was talking to this angel Charlie, I think, the whole time. I don't know what. A wonderful life. It's a wonderful life. You know, and there's nothing wrong with all that. But angels were big in Judaism. They're kind of big in our sight. But here he's saying, Jesus is better even than the angels. He is supreme over that. It's going to be our first better statement, but we'll dive more into that and get into the rest of chapter 1, maybe a little chapter 2 next week. All right? So let's pray.